Section 23 of Great Ghost Stories by Joseph Lewis French. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 23 The Withered Arm by Thomas Hardy. Part 1 A Lorn Milkmaid. It was an eighty cow dairy, and the troop of milkers, regular and supernumerary, were all at work for though the time of year was as yet but early April, the feed lay entirely in water meadows, and the cows were in full pail. The hour was about six in the evening, and three-fourths of the large red rectangular animals having been finished off, there was opportunity for a little conversation. "'He do bring home his bride to-morrow, I hear,' They've come as far as Angleberry today. The voice seemed to proceed from the belly of the cow named Cherry, but the speaker was a milking woman whose face was buried in the flank of that motionless beast. Have anybody seen her? said another. There was a negative response from the first. Though they say she's a rosy-cheeked, Tisty tosty little body enough, she added, and as the milkmaid spoke, she turned her face so that she could glance past her cow's tail to the other side of the barton, where a thin, fading woman of thirty milked somewhat apart from the rest. Years younger than he, they say, continued the second, with also a glance of reflectiveness in the same direction. Nothing more was said publicly about Farmer Lodge's wedding, but the first woman murmured under her cow to her next neighbor, "'Tis hard for she,' signifying the thin, worn milkmaid aforesaid. "'Oh, no,' said the second. "'He hadn't spoke to Rhoda Brook for years.' When the milking was done, they washed their pails and hung them on a many-forked stand made of the peeled limb of an oak tree, set upright in the earth and resembling a colossal antlered horn. The majority then dispersed in various directions homeward. The thin woman who had not spoken was joined by a boy of twelve or thereabout, and the twain went away up the field also. Their course lay apart from that of the others, to a lonely spot high above the water meads, and not far from the border of Egdon Heath, whose dark countenance was visible in the distance as they drew nigh to their home. "'They've just been saying down in Barton "'that your father brings his young wife home from Angleberry tomorrow,' "'the woman observed. "'I shall want to send you for a few things to the market, "'and you'll be pretty sure to meet him. "'Yes, mother,' said the boy. "'Is father married, then?' "'Yes. "'You can give her a look "'and tell me what she's like if you do see her.' Yes, mother. If she's dark or fair, and if she's tall, as tall as I, and if she seems like a woman who has ever worked for a living, or one that has been always well off and has never done anything and shows marks of the lady on her, as I expect she do. 
Yes. They crept up the hill in the twilight and entered the cottage. It was built of mud walls, the surface of which had been washed by many rains into channels and depressions that left none of the original flat face visible, while here and there in the thatch above a rafter showed like a bone protruding through the skin. She was kneeling down in the chimney corner, before two pieces of turf laid together with the heather inwards, blowing at the red-hot ashes with her breath till the turves flamed. The radiance lit her pale cheek and made her dark eyes, that had once been handsome, seem handsome anew. Yes, she resumed, see if she is dark or fair, and if you can, notice if her hands be white. If not, see if they look as though she had ever done housework or our milker's hands like mine. The boy again promised, inattentively this time, his mother not observing that he was cutting a notch with his pocket knife in the beech-backed chair. The Young Wife The road from Anglebury to Holmstoke is in general level, but there is one place where a sharp ascent breaks its monotony, Farmers, homeward bound from the former market town, who trot all the rest of the way, walk their horses up this short incline. The next evening, while the sun was yet bright, a handsome new gig, with a lemon-colored body and red wheels, was spinning westward along the level highway at the heels of a powerful mare. The driver was a yeoman in the prime of life, cleanly shaven like an actor, his face being toned to that bluish vermilion hue which so often graces a thriving farmer's features when returning home after successful dealings in the town. Beside him sat a woman, many years his junior, almost indeed a girl. Her face, too, was fresh in color, but it was of a totally different quality, soft and evanescent, like the light under a heap of rose petals. Few people traveled this way, for it was not a main road, and the long white ribband of gravel that stretched before them was empty, save of one small, scarce-moving speck, which presently resolved itself into the figure of a boy who was creeping on at a snail's pace and continually looking behind him the heavy bundle he carried being some excuse for if not the reason of his dilatoriness when the bouncing gig party slowed at the bottom of the incline above mentioned the pedestrian was only a few yards in front supporting the large bundle by putting one hand on his hip he turned and looked straight at the farmer's wife as though he would read her through and through pacing along abreast of the horse. The low sun was full in her face, rendering every feature, shade, and contour distinct, from the curve of her little nostril to the color of her eyes. The farmer, though he seemed annoyed at the boy's persistent presence, did not order him to get out of the way, 
and thus the lad preceded them, his hard gaze never leaving her, till they reached the top of the ascent, when the farmer trotted on with relief in his lineaments, having taken no outward notice of the boy whatever. "'How that poor lad stared at me,' said the young wife. "'Yes, dear, I saw that he did. "'Is he one of the village, I suppose?' "'One of the neighborhood. "'I think he lives with his mother a mile or two off. "'He knows who we are, no doubt?' "'Oh, yes. "'You must expect to be stared at just at first, my pretty Gertrude.' "'I do, though I think the poor boy may have looked at us "'in the hope we might relieve him of his heavy load "'rather than from curiosity.' "'Oh, no.' said her husband offhandedly. These country lads will carry a hundred weight once they get it on their backs. Besides, his pack had more size than weight in it. Now then, another mile and I shall be able to show you our house in the distance, if it is not too dark before we get there. The wheels spun round, and particles flew from their periphery as before, till a white house of ample dimensions revealed itself with farm buildings and ricks at the back. Meanwhile the boy had quickened his pace, and turning up a by-lane some mile and half short of the white farmstead, ascended towards the leaner pastures, and so on to the cottage of his mother. She had reached home after her day's milking at the outlying dairy, and was washing cabbage at the doorway in the declining light. "'Hold up the net a moment,' she said, without preface, as the boy came up. He flung down his bundle, held the edge of the cabbage net, and as she filled its meshes with the dripping leaves, she went on. "'Well, did you see her?' "'Yes, quite plain.' "'Is she ladylike?' Yes, and more, a lady complete. Is she young? Well, she's growed up, and her ways be quite a woman's. Of course. What color is her hair and face? Her hair is lightish, and her face as comely as a live doll's. Her eyes, then, are not dark like mine? No, of a bluish turn, and her mouth is very nice and red, and when she smiles, her teeth show white. Is she tall? said the woman sharply. I couldn't see. She was sitting down. Then do go to Holmstoke Church tomorrow morning. She's sure to be there. Go early and notice her walking in, and come home and tell me if she's taller than I. Very well, mother, but why don't you go and see for yourself? I go to see her. I wouldn't look up at her if she were to pass my window this instant. She was with Mr. Lodge, of course. What did he say or do? Just the same as usual. Took no notice of you? None. Next day the mother put a clean shirt on the boy and started him off for Holmstoke Church. 
He reached the ancient little pile when the door was just being opened, and he was the first to enter. Taking his seat by the front, he watched all the parishioners file in. The well-to-do farmer Lodge came nearly last, and his young wife, who accompanied him, walked up the aisles with the shyness natural to a modest woman who had appeared thus for the first time. As all other eyes were fixed upon her, the youth's stare was not noticed now. When he reached home, his mother said, Well, before he had entered the room. She is not tall. She's rather short, he replied. Ah, said his mother with satisfaction. But she's very pretty, very. In fact, she's lovely. The youthful freshness of the yeoman's wife had evidently made an impression even on the somewhat hard nature of the boy. That's all I want to hear, said his mother quickly. Now spread the tablecloth. The hair you caught is very tender, but mind that nobody catches you. You've never told me what sort of hands she had. I've never seen them. She never took off her gloves. What did she wear this morning? A white bonnet and a silver-colored gown. It wooed and whistled so loud when it rubbed against the pews that the lady colored up more than ever for the very shame at the noise and pulled it in to keep it from touching. But when she pushed into her seat, it wooed more than ever. Mr. Lodge, he seemed pleased, and his waistcoat stuck out and his great golden seals hung like a lord's. But she seemed to wish her noisy gown anywhere but on her. Not she. However, that will do now. These descriptions of the newly married couple were continued from time to time by the boy at his mother's request, after any chance encounter he had had with them. But Rhoda Brooke, though she might easily have seen young Mrs. Lodge for herself by walking a couple of miles, would never attempt an excursion towards the quarter where the farmhouse lay. Neither did she, at the daily milking in the dairyman's yard on Lodge's outlying second farm, ever speak on the subject of the recent marriage. The dairyman, who rented the cows of Lodge and knew perfectly the tall milkmaid's history, with manly kindliness always kept the gossip and the cow barton from annoying Rhoda. But the atmosphere thereabout was full of the subject during the first days of Mrs. Lodge's arrival, and from her boy's description and the casual words of the other milkers, Rhoda Brooke could raise a mental image of the unconscious Mrs. Lodge that was realistic as a photograph. A Vision One night, two or three weeks after the bridal return, when the boy was gone to bed, Rhoda sat a long time over the turf ashes that she had raked out in front of her to extinguish them. She contemplated so intently the new wife, as presented to her in her mind's eye over the embers, that she forgot the lapse of time. At last, wearied with her day's work, she too retired. 
but the figure which had occupied her so much during this and the previous days was not to be banished at night. For the first time, Gertrude Lodge visited the supplanted woman in her dreams. Rhoda Brooke dreamed, since her assertion that she really saw before falling asleep was not to be believed, that the young wife, in the pale silk dress and white bonnet, but with features shockingly distorted and wrinkled as by age, was sitting upon her chest as she lay. The pressure of Mrs. Lodge's person grew heavier. The blue eyes peered cruelly into her face, and then the figure thrust forward its left hand mockingly so as to make the wedding ring it wore glitter in Rhoda's eyes. Maddened mentally and nearly suffocated by pressure, the sleeper struggled. The incubus, still regarding her, withdrew to the foot of the bed, only, however, to come forward by degrees, resume her seat, and flash her left hand as before. Gasping for breath, Rhoda, in the last desperate effort, swung out her right hand, seized the confronting specter by its obtrusive left arm, and whirled it backward to the floor, starting up herself as she did so with a low cry. Oh, merciful heaven, she cried, sitting on the edge of the bed in a cold sweat. That was not a dream. She was here. She could feel her antagonist's arm within her grasp even now, the very flesh and bone of it as it seemed. She looked on the floor whither she had whirled the specter, but there was nothing to be seen. Rhoda Brooke slept no more that night, and when she went milking at the next dawn, they noticed how pale and haggard she looked. The milk that she drew quivered into the pail. Her hand had not calmed even yet, and still retained the feel of the arm. She came home to breakfast as wearily as if it had been supper time. "'What was that noise in your chimmer, mother, last night?' said her son. "'You fell off the bed, surely?' "'Did you hear anything fall? At what time?' "'Just when the clock struck two. She could not explain, and when the meal was done, went silently about her household work, the boy going afield on the farms.' Between eleven and twelve, the garden gate clicked, and she lifted her eyes to the window. At the bottom of the garden, within the gate, stood the woman of her vision. Rhoda seemed transfixed. The impression remaining from the night's experience was still strong. Brooke had almost expected to see the wrinkles, the scorn, and the cruelty on her visitor's face. She would have escaped an interview had escape been possible. "'I see I have come to the right house,' said Mrs. Lodge, smiling. "'But I was not sure till you opened the door.' The figure and action were those of the phantom, but her voice was so indescribably sweet, her glance so winning, her smile so tender— so unlike that of Rhoda's midnight visitant, 
that the latter could hardly believe the evidence of her senses. She was truly glad that she had not hidden away in sheer aversion as she had been inclined to do. "'I walk a good deal,' said Mrs. Lodge, "'and your house is the nearest outside our own parish. I hope you are well. You don't look quite well.' Rhoda said she was well enough, and indeed, though the paler of the two— there was more of the strength that endures in her well-defined features and large frame than in the soft-cheeked young woman before her. The conversation became quite confidential as regarded their powers and weaknesses, and when Mrs. Lodge was leaving, Rhoda said, "'I hope you will find this air agree with you, ma'am, and not suffer from the damp of the water-meads.' The younger one replied that there was not much doubt of it, her general health being usually good. Though, now you remind me, she added, I have one little ailment which puzzles me. It is nothing serious, but I cannot make it out. She uncovered her left hand and arm and their outline confronted Rhoda's gaze as the exact original of the limb she had beheld and seized in her dream. Upon the pink round surface of the arm were faint marks of an unhealthy color, as if produced by a rough grasp. Rhoda's eyes became riveted on the discolorations. She fancied that she discerned in them the shape of her own four fingers. "'How did it happen?' she asked mechanically. "'I cannot tell,' replied Mrs. Lodge, shaking her head. "'One night, when I was sound asleep, dreaming I was away in some strange place, a pain suddenly shot into my arm there, and was so keen as to awaken me. I must have struck it in the daytime, I suppose, though I don't remember doing so.' She added, laughing, I tell my dear husband that it looks just as if he had flown into a rage and struck me there. Oh, I dare say it will soon disappear. Ah, yes. On what night did it come? Mrs. Lodge considered and said it would be a fortnight ago on the morrow. When I was awoke, I could not remember where I was, she added till the clock striking two reminded me. She had named the night and the hour of Rhoda's spectral encounter, and Brooke felt like a guilty thing. The artless disclosure startled her. She did not reason on the freaks of coincidence, and all the scenery of that ghastly night returned with double vividness to her mind. Oh, can it be, she said to herself when her visitor had departed, that I exercise a malignant power over people against my own will? She knew that she had been silly called a witch since her fall, but never having understood why that particular stigma had been attached to her, it had passed disregarded. Could this be the explanation? and had such things as this ever happened before end of section 23 the withered hand 
Part 1